Welcome to the Security Sessions podcast, brought to you by Talist and hosted by me, Nera Jones. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the technologies, people, and processes behind information security and delving into topics like data security, remote access, and digital transformation. We'll be speaking to Talis and industry experts to bring you fresh perspectives on how to navigate the world of cloud security. Today is episode two, more digital, more risk, where is the trust? I am delighted to be joined today by Simon Keats, Head of Strategy and Payment Security at Talis, and Arthur van der Meere, Security and Industry Compliance Manager at the Australian Payments Network. So first of all, I am going to ask my guests to briefly introduce themselves. Simon. Hi, good morning, Nira. Thanks very much for, for hosting. Um, exciting to, to be here with you. Um, so my name is Simon Keats, um, managing the strategy of our payment security products at, at Talus. It's been a long time for me at Talus. I think I'm, I'm coming up to my 13th year now, but holding, I think, you know, very strong interest in technology, obviously security and and the new wave of fintech. So interesting um, topics ahead, I, I hope. Thank you, Simon, and welcome. Arthur, you have extensive experience in the payments industry. Could you briefly introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Nera. So um, I'm the Security and Industry Compliance Manager at the Australian Payments Network, um, and I also sit on ISO for Banking and Security Working Group 11 and 13, and participate within um, PCI Working Groups and on the Technical Advisory Board for PCI. I'm also the um, editor for the Australian Standards, um, AS2805. And I'm really excited to be on this um, podcast with you, Nira. Thank you, Arthur. Glad to have you. So it is undeniable that more digitization means more risk. And it is also undeniable that we are not going back to the way it was. The change is here to stay. So as we go forward with faster and faster payments and one-click engagements, what kind of risk do you think this brings to the consumer, Simon? Yeah, like you said, Nira, it's a very, very interesting time. I, I think that the, the pandemic has done a lot to um, clarify our behavior and, and accelerate us in, into these um, new ways of, of making payments, new ways of, of transacting. In terms of risk and in terms of what I think the the, the, the dangers are, it's probably a multi-sided. On the consumer side, with the rapidly changing behavior, I think one of the biggest risks is that consumers aren't necessarily used to the the way to transact. And with all the new ways of doing things, it, it leaves them open to more easy um, attacks through phishing um, and, and social engineering. By not having that uh, repeated process, every time they do something, it's new. And by that newness, you can introduce um, differences and, and catch them off guard, I, th I think, is, is one side. That's at the, at the consumer side. At the organizational side, though, I think equally it's, it's that acceleration into new ways of doing things, moving into cloud services, for example, and trying to get products to market or services to market quickly and often foregoing some of the procedural or, or security processes that, that would have been done had they not been in, in, a, in a rush 
to respond to the market needs. Indeed, that uh, that is very true. We are forced into a digital transformation uh, faster than perhaps we would have liked it in uh, in general. So, Arthur, what have you observed? Well, within Australia, there's been a very, very large push into the digitization, not only on payments and also also identity. Traditionally, there was a consistent methods of doing payments. You put in your card, you put in your PIN. You know, since since we lifted our contactless limit within Australia to two hundred dollars, and that accounts for about eighty five percent of all transactions, consumers don't look at the devices anymore. They simply tap their card, tap their phone, and and with the dawn of um, of CPOC and Spock and mobile devices that's being used as payments, you know, attackers that there's so much more attack attack vectors that can be presented to a consumer. Um, that's from a consumer perspective. From a backend perspective, this push into the digitization cloud services as, uh, as the mentality of of of, uh, de- of developers within cloud services are often to fail fast, you know, develop the minimal viable product. And what you see is 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 people building payment services within the cloud that doesn't necessarily have the same robust security as the traditional acquiring platforms. You know, using uh, cryptography in software, using services, not doing uh, the necessary due diligence on on the on the vulnerabilities that that, that actually might exist within the environment. Absolutely. So, uh, so on, on on that, I mean, we all very conscious that uh, corporate entities perhaps have uh, have the resources to and the knowledge to deal with that. But when we're talking about small businesses, especially during the current pandemic, what would be your advice to them, both uh, Simon and Arthur? So, Nera. Um... Within this pandemic, we've seen this move from payments to be to be contactless, to be as contactless as possible. Right? I went to a restaurant quite quite recently. They asked me to scan a QR code. On the website was the menu, and I could select my items and pay my card. and And by pay by card, I mean I punch in my my card details into their website. And these restaurants are not security organizations. They don't necessarily have the, the expertise and, and the knowledge of the large organizations. So the, they, these new mechanisms of, 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 of pushing payments to be as contactless as possible is introducing a range of issues. Uh, we've seen pathomagicals attacks. But those attacks are, have... Um, changed during the past few years. It was introduced in 2015, and today we see several variations of it. So these smaller organizations that doesn't necessarily have the expertise, it doesn't have the knowledge to actually implement these strategies correctly. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Arthur. It's, again, thinking of changing behaviors and um, things that we've, we've experienced in, in the wake of the pandemic and, and the lockdown, I saw a number of restaurants here in the UK um, move on to, um, on to delivery services. So all the pubs in my village now support um, or, or now provide um, takeaway in, instead of going in and eating in, indoors. And that's a great sort of innovation and in, in allowing them to continue to transact. And, and on one hand, it's been very low tech. So it's literally been run via... Um, text messages 
they publish the menu out over SMS and you get to select one, two, five, and seven of, of the pizzas that you want and, and they order them and you you um, send them money via the real-time payment system uh, here in the UK. So very, very low tech, but it works you know, quite quite well. But equally, I've, I've seen some websites get spun up very quickly and I think that 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 uh, leads to your point, Arthur, is services, do they always know exactly what they're doing, especially where they're just knowledgeable enough to be dangerous and, and launch these services themselves without outsourcing all of it and, and putting themselves in a, in a situation where they haven't secured it in, in a way that a professional site might have been secured, leaving them open to those vulnerabilities like Magecart. Or, you know, I think even just like simple uh, vulnerability scanning where um, a, a, an issue might exist in an operating system or in a plugin or something that allows the criminal a, a backdoor into their system. So, yeah, you know, your, your point is, is very valid. It's, it's these SMBs, at least on the electronic or the digital side, leaving themselves open to vulnerabilities just because they're simply not aware. They're not payments experts. They're not security experts. They're pub owners, you know, or, or small businesses doing the thing that they do best now dabbling into this new world of, of digitized digitized shopping and digitized finance. So we've, uh, we've ascertained that uh, uh, small businesses is essentially have been forced into digital innovation and digital payments, but they don't necessarily have the knowledge to do this securely. What would be the advice to them uh, of, in terms of striking the right balance between this innovation and security and compliance to ensure that their consumers remain secure? My advice would be to not use a quick and dirty solution. There are providers that provide secure solutions to provide a payment so these small businesses can concentrate on what they do best sell foods, and sell goods. There's, there's um, organizations that implemented secure standards like Secure Remote Commerce and 3D Secure. And there's also um, um, industry projects like uh, faster payment services, like in the UK and in Australia. So if, if, if these small organizations can be aware and, and, and leverage those tools to, to their advantage, they can both secure themselves and and secure their consumers. Absolutely. And and you, Simon? Yeah, Nira, that's interesting. And I, I often think that regulation is seen as, as a bit of a hindrance to innovation. And certainly it, it does slow things down. And you know, sometimes the um, the specifications take just as long to catch up to the new way of doing things before we've leapfrogged and actually moved on to another way, way of, of transacting and, and, um, and interacting at a, within the finance ecosystem. I think it's look to the regulations, though. They do; they are there for a purpose. Every security standard is is there in really in response to a vulnerability that's existed, that has been exploited in the past, and that has led to uh, monetizing the the systems that have been compromised. So, even as you move away from the traditional card payments, perhaps, and you know, into the world of QR codes and alternative payments, I think still look back to those regulations of the old world. And see what benefits they've brought to that to that ecosystem. Absolutely. So, because uh, uh, obviously, what we're suggesting here is uh, d- to rely on uh, on trusted providers uh, because their core competency is, uh, is providing uh, the infrastructure uh, for secure payments in uh, in general. So, 
on that point, uh, do you expect a rise in embedded finance in general? We've been talking about open banking and, and now we start talking about open finance um, and an increased role for for the cloud and uh, all sorts of uh, as-a-service offerings which go beyond payments, uh, uh, but include payments, of course. So what what do you think the trend will be for these? Yeah, I, I certainly think it's an interesting time ahead in the way that um, technology is, is delivered to organizations as, as they try to build out services. And, you know, your, your point is, is spot on, Nira, about consuming, I think, multiple small services where those, those organizations are at least educated about the existence of, of these services. Don't roll your own card acceptance capability within your website. There are a multitude of, of capabilities here to, to do that for you, especially as a, as a small business. If you're a large grocery store or, or a huge e-commerce store, it makes sense to do that yourself. But I think if you're getting started, is consume the services that are developed by professionals for that one very specific purpose. It does give rise to a new threat vector, if you like, you know, for want of, of a better exp- expression. But as we start consuming all of these new services, it's a new way of doing things. And again, as these new methods are coming to, to much wider use, they equally become big targets. So can I spoof that API? What does the authentication look like between the different services? What data is flowing down these paths? So as much as I, I do see this being the future, I think there are a lot of considerations that need to be made in terms of how everyone consumes these services and services consuming services and, and so on further down the chain. And where does the security end and who has the liability? So lots to consider. Yes, absolutely. And that's a very na- nice segue to uh, to my next question, which is uh, uh, innovation has driven businesses into doing things in a totally different way, but uh, uh, it has also uh, generating increased demand for fintech offerings and new innovation and smaller companies entering the market in payments and financial services in, in general. Uh, and uh, the the fintech companies of, of this world um, are also uh, liable for the security of their customers with open banking. We have a plethora of APIs to contend with. So what would be the advice to those new organizations entering this space, offering those services? Because traditional banks have been used to being regulated. And as we said before, they have the resources and the capabilities to deal with uh, with security and, and risk in general, because they've been doing it for a very, very long time. But for those new organizations, they have risks as well. What is your advice to them, Arthur? Yes, there are several frameworks in which these small organizations, these new fintechs have have increased liability. And and in Australia, we've we've, we've certainly um, catered for that. um, we, We have graduated approaches where they don't have full liability immediately. Where, where where they can uh, essentially start with a with a um, least liable approach, but also on the other hand, you've got fintech organisations that accept card payments that that are not liable for that fraud, right? If essentially issuers are liable, um, and and often what you see is they that 
they don't really take care of the number one the secured the security of the transactions um and also they they use mechanisms that doesn't um fit existing standards they they go for the fail fast approach and um for because they essentially um um develop a product they that they don't necessarily consider all the approaches and all the and all the end of organizations that have um, exposed liability within the process. So what would be your advice to them, Simon? I think, you know, it sounds like something we've been saying, at least, you know, in, in my career within within um, security and, and payments, which is, you know, only 10 or, or so years. But in security general, we've been saying the same message is start with the security, you know, have a security first mindset. Um, but so often I, I just see that being left behind as, as always being an afterthought. So as much as possible, I, I do think security first and, and risk first. It's not the, the kind of most interesting thing to, to go and talk about at a conference or on a podcast, but take a risk-based approach to understanding what your vulnerabilities and, and what your threats are and put the controls in place to, to mitigate against them. What are the most likely or you know, highly probable events, don't go and protect against this you know, very specific um, advanced threat against your organization. Threat, protect against the risks that are, that are valid and most likely to happen against you. So take that security first approach, do the risk management and build in the controls to, to protect against them. But Simon, to your point, um, attackers always go for the lowest hanging fruit that has um, the most benefit. And more often you see organizations having a, a very good security architecture at the beginning, especially fintechs. And then quickly as products evolve, they start deploying quicker and quicker. And yet it only takes one remote code execution high vulnerability on a cloud platform to expose all, all your data. And I, I think that you need to continually assess your risk and 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 you need to continually um, 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 change your approach or, or, or reassess your risk. Yeah, great, absolutely, Arthur, great point. And, and I think that is perhaps also something that, that, that I overlook. It's, you know, approach from security first and, and have that good risk management baked in from the start. But then how do I get back around to validating these things um, at, at a continual um, or continuous interval, continuous cadence throughout the life cycle of my product? So yeah, good good point, Arthur, and thanks for that. It's you know, come back to them, reassess what the vulnerabilities are. How have I changed my tech stack? And again, then what new vulnerabilities exist? Because, like you said, as soon as I open up one piece of functionality, if there's a remote code exec, or if there's a cross-site stripping scripting vulnerability, scans across the internet are picking these things up, and and will very quickly exploit them wherever the the lowest effort is on the criminal's part. But Simon, we've seen this happening. Uh, this the, this continual assessment approach, especially within CPOC and SPOC standards, where there's an annual review because you know mobile operating systems change. There's uh, new vulnerabilities. There's uh, zero day attacks, and I think as that type of approach is essential for small organisations to continually do their security audits properly and to to uh, like you said assess them themselves in a a continuous manner. But I think, and then I'll hand back to you, Nira. Um, but you're, you're right, Arthur. I, I think the, the difficulty, though, is where you're looking at well-defined um, systems, 
particularly within card payments. So whether that's Spark or CPARC or uh, mobile point of sale, point to point encryption, and DSS generally kind of overlaying a lot of this, it calls for that continued, uh, continuous evaluation. It's as we move away from cards onto alternative payment methods when I'm using real-time payment systems as an example as the back end for uh, fulfillment, there aren't necessarily those regulations in place to force the hand of the small businesses to go and do that continuous review. So I think in a, in something I, I mention often, you know, every time I get the chance is go back and look at the regulations that you're trying to disrupt and see what lessons they have and what processes, because they're there for a reason. Absolutely. Regulations are always there for a reason, uh, which brings me to, to my next question, actually. Uh, I'm sure everyone is aware of the various open banking regulations around the world, uh, not least of which is the second payment services directive in Europe. And uh, uh, to your point on alternative payments, um, more and more people or organizations certainly are aware of open banking. Um, the PSD2 made a, a very clear play for giving access to, to third party uh, to financial accounts. Uh, and that means basically a proliferation of, uh, of APIs. So uh, in terms of uh, securing APIs, which uh, we've mentioned earlier on, uh, are now cropping up just about everywhere, uh, do you think API security is given enough airtime, Simon? Absolutely not, Nero. Um, I, it's it's the one thing I, I think that I'm really failing to see any great conversation around. Um, you know, as I as I read through blogs and and, and news articles, it brings in a, a whole new dynamic of of responsibility um, where where I'm engaging with third parties and, and talking to them at a programmatic level. And certainly, whilst whilst the the communication protocols might be secure, while there might be good um, permission-based access, it's how do I know genuinely that I'm speaking to the right party? What kind of trust is in place? And again, then, as I'm moving a lot of data between these different um, these different entities, where is the data at any one time and who is responsible for that data? I think are, are big questions that need to be answered, you know, both at an organization and, and at a regulatory level. And Arthur, what's your view on this? Well, APIs is not given enough airtime at all. Like we, we certainly know that there's 10 OWASP principles and, you know, it's within payments, you see terminal drivers sitting in the cloud now using APIs, right? How are those APIs actually secured? You've got authorization, authentication frameworks, which, which are just frameworks, which can actually be implemented very insecurely. And it's been proven because APIs are so flexible um, securing them is extremely difficult, and and as as has a payment industry, I think there's there's definitely a need to have secure payment APIs, and, and there is of course you know Happy, which is a framework, but it's 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 certainly um, extensive enough. So from an organisational level, if you are working with APIs, it's it's it becomes extremely complex and daunting and, you know, you can introduce any vulnerability at any single time. But there is significant com conversations happening within standards organizations as, 
as well as within PCI to actually look at APIs and how to secure top of the payment. Absolutely, and uh, uh, which brings me to one of my favorite topics, which is that of uh, digital identity and and authentication. Of course, the regulation are, are, are there to ensure they provide a, a framework, but uh, digital identity and authentication are absolutely intrinsic to payments, not only from the point of view of authenticating the, the consumer, but also authenticated the, the third parties they have empowered to, uh, to act on, on their behalf. So uh, what, what would be uh, you know, your advice in terms of authentication and digital identity to organizations trying to deploy these services, Simon? Thanks, Nero. You're absolutely right. Digital identity is is a big problem to solve. And, and I think it comes back really to, to probably one of your earlier points is on relying on, on third-party services. Again, this is a huge topic that organizations base their entire existence upon. And, and I think as these alternative payment methods gain in popularity, it's look to those third parties that provide services like authentication and identity as the as their core business don't try and invent it yourself you know arthur's point about implementing apis and, and getting things wrong the same thing happens with um with identity and and um authentication systems it's not going to be the technical or the cryptographic side that that falls down it's going to be the implementation so look to the experts look to the companies that that do this you know on a daily basis rather than try and, and build the services yourself and you, Arthur? Yes, to your point. Now, Australia has a digital identity framework and also a government-based digital identity framework, two different ones. One, And the, the trust, trust ID framework was developed by, um, was, was developed by Ausponet. Um, and our Reserve Bank identified that, that this was a, a major issue especially within the industry that we are, like the increased digitalization. Um, but implementing a framework is quite different because you, you can implement things that conforms to a framework, but it can still be insecure. So it, it's, a, it's a major problem. So I would agree with Simon saying, like, you, you have to look to organizations that, 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 that to build the organization on, this, on developing these solutions. So uh, if you look back at the title of this episode, which is more digital, more risk, where is the trust? We've been talking about companies, large and small, and organizations and service providers, uh, but it is undeniable that the consumers themselves uh, still distrust those services if we to look at the industry statistics. So uh, what role uh, uh can we play as uh, as businesses and certainly security or payment vendors uh, in terms of uh, educating consumers and not only make them aware of the services available, but how to protect themselves? What's our role? It's an interesting question, Nira, and I think it, it varies probably across the, the generations or you know age gaps, perhaps, um, where you've got potentially much more um, tech aware or, or, or tech savvy audience that understands what the risks are and don't want to feel like they've been 
uh, led through the, the process by a, by a parent in a kind of babysitter scenario. So, so we, it's, a, it's a fine line to tread. But I, I do think as the community through the, the security vendors and, and through the organizations providing services to their customers is to educate them about their, uh, their, their requirement on the, on the consumer to transact securely. We've gone through in the UK 20 years of, of having chip and pin and understanding what that means and, and how to keep our pin secure. And then we, we moved to contactless and it was a big mind shift for authenticating a transaction without having to enter a pin. And again, you know, leading to confusion w- within the consumer base. As we move to alternative mechanisms now, again, it's a whole new world for the consumers. As I said earlier, opening up um, space for, for vulnerability and, and exploitation. So is educating them through those changes, educating customers as to what the new authentication and authorization mechanisms are and what the impact to them is if those things get lost or, or are misused. A good example of this is thinking about the, the payment services directive and, and connecting with third-party systems for account aggregation. We'll be handing over permission between our main bank account and that aggregation service. And what does that permission look like? How long does it live? What does it enable or entitle that third-party company to do? And I understand what that means. I, you know, I, I work with this on, on a daily basis. But do, does the general public understand what that means? And I think that's an important thing is, is as we move away from the normal way of doing things into different ways, that's what really needs to be educated. How are things different and how do consumers need to operate within this new world? Absolutely. And Arthur, what is best practice advice from your point of view in terms of educating the consumers? Well, similar to the UK, Australia also had a massive shift to contactless, but that shift was really quickly. Right? It showed that people people don't go out and do a payment. Right? Um, people go out to shop, so the payment needs to be ubiquitous. From a consumer education perspective, there was a consistent mechanism of different mechanisms that have got different issues, different ways of making the payment. And, and, and a similar way of educating the, the consumers was, is, with, um, is with open banking in Australia, where we have a consent-based model. We clearly define, we clearly show the user what he is consenting to, right? what, what information is being shared, for how long. And that type of model of showing uh, create showing the consumer and creating that trust is essential in educating the consumer in using a service. Absolutely. A lot of uh, transparency uh, is needed in that respect. So if I were to ask each one of you, uh, what would be your last best piece of advice to both consumers and businesses in, in respect to or new uh, digital environment? What would it be, Simon? Thanks, Nira. It's an exciting time ahead, I think. And my message to the consumers really is in, embrace this, this great new future. There are a lot of way, uh, new methods coming up in, in terms of how we make payments and deviating from, from, from the norm. It's important for consumers to understand what the risks are at their own level. I think as a, as a society, we need to have better operational security. And so we need to understand what to do with our pins and passphrases and, and permissions and, and know what the implications of those things are and, and what happens when, when things go wrong. 
to businesses, it's look back to the regulation. I, I keep saying this, but I think we've learned so much over the last 30 or 40 years of, of card payments and have grown through multiple vulnerabilities and, and mistakes to the point where we are at least very secure on, on the physical card side. Look what's happened you know, across this time frame and see what lessons can be learned when you develop alternative payment systems so that you don't make those same mistakes and, and don't reintroduce vulnerabilities that have been well understood and well protected against over the last couple of decades. Thank you, Simon. And Arthur, what would be your last best piece of advice to consumers and businesses? So my advice to consumers would be that if you have to type your car details into a website, it, 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 it is not secure. Use a provider, use someone that can obfuscate your car details or tokenize it. Do not type your car, de- your car details into a site when you go shopping. Um, if, if you are doing a payment and something feels wrong, if, if it feels inconsistent, stop and question it. Right? We've seen plenty of people using card skimmers, stealing card data, just, just by distracting the actual card holder. Um, from a business perspective, the, sta- the standards has been around for a very long time, and you should always look at implementing best practices. If you can't meet a standard, at least meet the intent of the standard. Constantly um, re- re-evaluate your implementations, reassess yourself against those security standards, even if it's internal, um, because technologies change rapidly. Processes change as well, but those standards remain in place for, for, for a reason. If you take a risk-based based approach whenever you make a decision around um, exposing certain data within your system. Well, thank you both for those uh Excellent piece of uh, ad- pieces of advice uh, and and for your insight uh, for this episode. More digital, more risk. Where is the trust? Uh, I thank you for your participation and thanks to the listeners for listening. Thank you, Nira, and thank you very much, Arthur, for joining us. It's a great pleasure to have you on this uh, second episode. I look forward to chatting with you in the future. And thanks again, Nira, for hosting. Thanks, Simon, and thank thank you very much, Nira, for hosting me. Love this episode of the Talus Security Sessions podcast? Search us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast service to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Be sure to visit us at cpl.talusgroup.com to access previous episodes, bringing you insights from industry experts on the latest cloud and data security news and trends. Thank you for listening.